Hello and welcome to a new series of short WI podcasts looking at why COP26 matters for different issues. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this episode we have a summary of the big picture. Can we keep this goal, this global goal of keeping global warming below 1.5C, can we keep that alive? You're listening to WRI's COP26 Shorts podcasts. Here's WRI's Vice President for Climate and Economics, Helen Mountford. COP26 is really a pivotal moment for us to show whether globally we can come together and collectively solve the great challenge of climate change and do so in a way where we really renew the spirit of solidarity between countries. So there's two big things we're looking for there. One is, can countries come forward, countries, but also what we're seeing in the finance sector and and others to really come forward with pledges to really limit global temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees Celsius or getting much closer to that? That's one. And the second is, can we really ensure we have the finance, the support, the solidarity across countries to help developing countries on their journey towards low carbon economies and also importantly building adaptation and resilience to the impacts of climate change and to what they're doing at home. Is it possible to pick those bits apart? There's so many bits there. You have the central kind of emissions question uh, and the 1.5 degrees uh, centigrade, but then you you also have things like adaptation and, and so on. Is it possible to do that or, or do you really have to see everything all all as one big challenge and these are the steps that people are going to take, governments are going to take? You can absolutely sort of pick apart different pieces of the puzzle. And I'd actually outline sort of five key elements that we're really looking for at COP26 from the World Resources Institute. But at the end of the day, the five elements are absolutely interconnected. And it's unlikely you could get success where you deliver two or three of these and the others fall by the wayside. You're going to need to get a package which actually brings these together in order to have success. And what are those five? So I would list them as, first of all, ambition in terms of climate action. And what we're really looking for is, can we keep this goal, this global goal of keeping global warming below 1.5C? Can we keep that alive? We know that uh, two years ago, at the time of the Madrid Climate Conference, the world was on track for a trajectory of probably around 2.8 degrees Celsius. At the moment, we've had a lot of new commitments come forward from various countries. We're now at about Um, 132 countries or so that have come forward with new uh, targets for 2030, some more ambitious, some not as ambitious. But across all of that, we probably have something like a trajectory towards about 2.4 degrees Celsius when you include both those 2030 targets and also those who've committed to net zero. So that's really progress from where we were just two years ago. But can we make even more progress towards that 1.5C goal? The second uh, piece, and it's very linked to that, of course, is around finance. We know that uh, developed countries are behind on their commitment to deliver $100 billion per year in climate finance to support developing countries. The latest OECD report showed this was around $79 billion in 2019, so still off track. Since then, we've had a number of countries that have come forward with new commitments, the U.S. again committing to double, the European Union stepping up again, 
countries like the Netherlands and Denmark and others stepping up, Germany stepping up their finance. So we've had more more announcements come forward. But can we show that we can really close that gap to help the developing nations do what they need, both on the, the ambition part, but also crucially on adaptation and resilience? And that to me is really the third key pillar here is around adaptation and resilience. And I'd actually add into this also loss and damages. So on this, we know that in terms of the finance, we need a much greater share that's going to support adaptation and resilience. In the past, it's been about 25% of international climate finance, and we need it to be more because we are seeing the impacts of climate change around the world in countries and regions everywhere, but particularly in developing countries who are most vulnerable to these impacts. So we need a lot more finance. We need a lot more support to actually ensure we're really making progress on adaptation and resilience. And then there is this other agenda, which we need to discuss more explicitly, and that is about loss and damages, right? So there's the first bucket where we try and reduce emissions as much as possible to limit global warming. Then we adapt where we can and build resilience to some of the impacts. But then there are irreversible losses, right, where we have communities wiped out, where we have to move people, etc. There's irreversible changes, which we also need to be able to start discussing how as a global community we manage those losses and damages. So that's the third bucket. The fourth bucket is really what we need to do in terms of the Paris rulebook. This is sort of the formal part of the negotiations where countries come together and look at how they're going to collaborate and cooperate together in order to keep moving forward on global action on climate change. It includes things like when do they set the timeframes for the next uh, period of enhancing ambition? How are we going to set up global carbon markets? How are we going to set the next target? for climate finance. Beyond 2025, we need a new target. So these are some of the rulebook questions, and we need those to be resolved in the negotiations to keep moving the implementation of the Paris Agreement forward internationally. And then the fifth bucket, I'd say, is actually what goes on outside the negotiations, whether it's energy or forests and land use or transport, what we're seeing in terms of the financial sector, a lot of momentum and action and sort of multi partner initiatives which are actually advancing climate action, including in some cases governments, but also a lot of the private sector, civil society, academia. And how can we actually ensure those are really supporting the kind of outcomes we need? There's a lot of exciting announcements we've been seeing, and we're expecting even more in the lead up to COP. So those to me are the five key elements which are going to need to be delivered, but also will interact between each other. Helen, it's basically a two-week conference. Looking from the outside, how can people or journalists or, or people, you know, just observing it, how can they tell whether these things are being taken seriously, whether there's any progress happening or, or whether just everyone in the room is, is kind of not managing to, to come together on these things? Well, Nicholas, I mean, it is, it's it's complex and normal circumstances to be able to sort of judge and understand what's going on. It's going to be even more challenging this year, not just because of COVID, which means we'll have a, a hopefully, you know, expect a smaller group of people there in Glasgow, actually participating, others watching from outside and continuing to move things forward on a virtual basis. So that's one level of complexity. But then the other is uh, one of the sort of innovative approaches the UK COP presidency has taken is 
that they're going to have a, a high level meeting of um, heads of state on the first two days of the two weeks, right? Often this has happened in the past. If heads of state came at all to COPS, they came at the end to try and make sure they got the breakthroughs that were needed and any sticking points in the negotiations. This time they're coming at the start. And the idea is really to have them step up right from the start, say what they are able to do, where the major approaches are, where they can actually make breakthroughs initially, and then give the instructions to their negotiating teams, to their ministers, to actually make progress over the following two weeks. So I would expect um, one thing to look for is really what happens in those first two days. What sort of announcements do we get from individual countries or countries collaborating together? There's, I mentioned the number of countries that have actually stepped up their 2030 climate targets, but there's some big ones that haven't yet. Um, China and India, for example, we're all watching to see, are they going to step up their 2030 targets? What might that look like? I mentioned the gap in the climate finance. Will there be some more countries that come forward at head of state level and actually indicate how they're going to help close that gap to support developing countries on their climate action? So those first two days are going to be really critical. Thereafter, we get into the the sort of depth of the negotiating process, you know, down into discussions around Article 6.2 and, you know, what's happening with common time frames and all the sort of much more technical aspects which are needed to make this all work well, right? And the collaboration and cooperation across countries to work well, but really is down in the weeds. And I think as we go through that, you'll start to see, um, and I think the press will be highlighting where there's certain areas emerging, either where we're starting to get to common solutions or agreement on text or on uh, some of these uh, these rulebook issues, or where there's real divisions emerging and where we're seeing real challenges in getting to those agreements. And that was Helen Mountford on what she's looking for at COP. The other seven episodes in this COP short series look at the conference through the lens of different issues, including oceans, cities and food and land use. The largest mitigation potential within natural climate solutions comes from protecting, restoring and managing our forests and other ecosystems. We will not be able to achieve a 1.5 degree world if we don't urgently transform our global food and land use systems there's plenty more on COP on our website, wri.org. And you can, of course, subscribe to our podcasts on all good podcast apps. I'm Nicholas Walton. Goodbye for now.